I, I think we can all agree the social media experiment has gone off the rails, right? So we know we're not living well right now with what we have, um, but certainly there are alternatives. Welcome to a very real episode of Log Off. Everyone has an internet story to tell, and today we're getting Dr. Walter Shires. Walter is a hacker turned computer scientist turned professor at the Department of Computer Science and Engineering at Notre Dame. He's also the author of the new book, A History of Fake Things on the Internet, which does an amazing job of breaking down historical advancements in technology, how they've blurred the lines of reality and imagination, and where we might be headed next. I'm excited to talk to him about his online journey and how worried or not we should be about all this fake stuff. So, Walter, let's start this podcast the way we always do at the beginning. What is your earliest internet memory? Thanks for having me on, Ryan. What is my earliest internet memory? That's a good question. I think, kind of like going back uh, in time, it was probably like the very early 1990s. I remember being at a friend's house uh, and he's telling me about this new computer peripheral he had, a modem. And he had this online service, Prodigy. So this is kind of like right before the internet uh, became a, a big deal, right? And so there were these different online services like um, uh, CompuServe and, and America Online, which became like the most famous version of that. And eventually they all became internet service providers. But in this period, it was somewhere between like a bulletin board system and the internet. There were forums, right? You can kind of communicate with other people. Uh, you could exchange files. You could read the news, um, but it was all self-contained. But you know, that was sort of my my entry point into computer networking and got me excited about you know the internet, which did come a couple of years later. You dedicated the book to hackers everywhere, so that's obviously a community you admire and maybe feel indebted to. How did you uh, find yourself eventually embedded with hacker culture? So I, again, an, another friend a few years later um, showed up at school one day talking about these text files he had found. He's like, look, I'm going to get into hacking. Um, there are these files online. You know, if you find the right sites, right, you can find all of these manuals describing how to break into computers, how to use operating systems that were not Microsoft Windows, all of this really intriguing stuff. Um, and so I was also sort of interested in, in this right away. You know, it's like, ooh, this seems great. You know, especially this is, I think, in middle school, right? So it's like transgressive <laughs> behavior, rebellion, wrapped up in a computing, sign me up. Um, and I was really interested on the, in the technical side of computing, too. So this is a great way to learn about the nuts and bolts of computing. Um, and so my friend gave it up pretty quickly, um, and I just stuck with it and kept reading, kept studying, started to talk to other people. Uh, online, you know, through internet relay chat, uh, through bulletin board systems, which were still online, you know, uh, in the like early to mid nineties. Um, and I was not a, a famous hacker by any means. I was one of these ankle biters in that period. Uh, but I learned a lot, uh, from, uh, more senior figures in the hacking world. Uh, some of those people became really good friends later on, uh, but I learned so much from the writing, so much from the programs that they were writing, all this interesting stuff. You mentioned text-based files being passed around. What kind of stuff was in those? Yeah, so these are really fascinating uh, files. This is something I, I think you don't really see anymore. There's like a specific era of the internet where text files were a big deal. And it wasn't just about hacking either. Um, this is like a genre of like early internet content um, because again, it was low bandwidth. You couldn't you know, create a video like we're doing now. You can't do a podcast. Uh, in the 1980s. So what people were doing was basically writing. Um, they were writing about what they were interested in. 
And so the hacking files are really cool because they blended technical information about usually breaking into computers, the phone system, et cetera, uh, with storytelling, really creative storytelling. So there would be these fictional elements weaved in with all of this technical material. Uh, and even some of that technical material was also fake. <laughs> so you had to kind of figure out, especially when you're starting out, what could you really do and what information was not useful? It was meant to be kind of a subculture prank, right? Especially kind of poking fun at the people that didn't know better. To me, the power of the internet has always been like not necessarily the content and the information you're passing around, but like finding your tribe. Um, maybe someone grew up in a small town or is introverted. It gives them a chance to find people with similar interests or new subcultures to be a part of. Is that kind of what you did by stumbling into those hacker channels? Yeah. And in fact, a lot of the writing about hacking, like both from back in the day and also like former hackers now talking about, you know, this subculture, it was really about the community. Um, mm -hmm. It's really, really fascinating to see all of the community building that went into that particular uh, subculture. And that was pretty representative of, I'd say, early online subcultures in general, right? You think about like, uh, gaming, if you think about um, people that were interested in like um, other forms of communication, like ham radio people like moved into the internet, right? So there's like all these people that just had like a special interest. Um, and they were trying to find other people that had this special interest because, right, it was kind of difficult, especially if you're in like a small town or like a suburb, right? It's like probably the case that uh, you're not going to find many people, you know, at your school, uh, in your community, they're interested in this like one niche thing. But if you open this up globally, right, you could connect with those other people um, and then, right, get people more interested in what you're doing as you build sort of a critical mass, right? I think that was like the real allure of computer networking at this early period, which is really fascinating. Uh, and that also, if you look at the history of the internet, like the early thinking that goes into the internet is really about the community building. Um, it's, it's really fascinating to go back to like the 1960s, the ideas of Marshall McLuhan. He's like a really famous media theorist. Um, what, he's, what he's talking about is the internet we have today, right? Where it's like we have this global village. It's bringing all these people together, right? People who wouldn't otherwise encounter each other uh, in the physical world wherever they lived. Um, and this is a huge like boon to creativity. It's a huge like, you know, uh, a boon to understanding, right? So you're really going to like figure out, you know, how to talk to other people that are far away and it usually starts again with this like shared interest, right? Um, you're just seeking these people out. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, very early in the book, you're really pushing back on some of those common hacker tropes that are portrayed by the media and pop culture and how that type guesting doesn't really ring true. It's more, you know, people with individual interests. Can you talk about the diversity of people you kind of encountered while you're on there? Yeah, so it, it is interesting, especially when we think about hackers, there's this common misunderstanding usually generated by the media, especially like, you know, like Hollywood, <laughs> yeah, these hackers are criminals, right? Um, there's these like solitary figures, they're like hiding in a basement, you know, conducting these crimes. Um, that's not really the case at all. Um, when you look at the subculture of hacking, right away, you see how social it is. Um, hackers at a very early period um, start to connect in the physical world. So they were holding conferences, which is kind of unusual for a bunch mm -hmm. of like high school and college age kids to kind of like find a hotel, get a contract to hold a, a conference at this hotel, uh, organize talks, right? All of this stuff that would go into like an ordinary conference, you know, like an academic conference or something, a professional trade show. Um, they kind of figure this infrastructure out. Um, and this is great because it's like they're developing really deep relationships online and now they're moving it to the physical world. And like, you know, it, it's just great to connect with people like in a different way. Right. So so they're able to do that, which is really fascinating. 
Um, again, they're producing a lot of material, like a lot of instructional material. We talked about these text files. Um, it turns out as time goes on, that material gets very, very sophisticated, uh, which is quite interesting. Um, and a lot of people learn from it. For instance, even the federal government with the United States before it developed a sophisticated understanding of computer security, it's learning a lot from this underground subculture of computer hackers. And some of the hackers eventually like go on to work for the government uh, in a very positive way. Um, and so I think that overturns the, this common narrative of, of the computer hacker um, that many people have, you know, in their mind. Do you have any specific examples that jump out? Because most of these people are using pseudonyms or screen names, right? And then you meet them in real in real life. Um, anything jump out as far as your memories of, of those first encounters? Yeah, exactly. And other people I've, I've, I've talked to uh, in terms of doing the research for this book, the, the sort of hacker voices that appear in the book, um, they're doing really interesting, innovative things these days. Um, uh, for instance, um, uh, the book talks about a hacker uh, who goes by the handle route. Uh, his real name is Mike Schiffman. Uh, he's now a security lead at Google, right? He's working for a major corporation, helping them to improve their networks. Uh, he was the editor of Frack Magazine, uh, one of the most famous underground publications of all time, which still exists, uh, which is kind of interesting. Um, another hacker the book talks a lot about um, is uh, Mudge. Uh, his real name uh, is Peter Zacko. Um, he uh, is a well-known figure both in industry uh, and also in the government. Uh, he spent time as a DARPA program manager. Uh, he has been in industry in multiple roles. Uh, notably, he was the whistleblower in the Elon Musk Twitter blow up a couple of years ago when Musk was acquiring Twitter, which is also kind of interesting, right? So these hackers are doing really interesting things. Um, the book also notes um, that Beto O'Rourke, the politician from Texas, mm -hmm. is a former computer hacker. Uh, former member of the Cult of the Dead Cow, right? That story uh, came out um, as his political career uh, was accelerating a few years ago. Uh, Joe Men, uh, uh, who um, I was writing for Reuters at the time, sort of covered that story, which is really interesting. Um, so, you know, you have a bunch of extraordinary individuals uh, in this period um, that are learning a lot, that are doing very, very new things, very innovative things with technology. It's not surprising in retrospect that they're doing, you know, even bigger and better things now. They walk among us. Um, you mentioned Frack Magazine that uh, dovetails nicely into the Quentin story. Can you explain that how that Dateline feature came out and, and the blowback and the, the aftermath of that? Um, so the backstory for this, um, it's, it's a case of fake news. Number one, um, hackers uh, basically plant a fake story about UFOs in an episode of Dateline NBC. Um, and Dateline runs it sort of matter of factly as if it's real, right? You know, it's the news. And, and I think most reasonable listeners right, of this podcast will understand that uh, we don't really have definitive evidence that UFOs have landed on planet Earth. Um, but this is kind of what the Dateline uh, episode reports. Um, so it's really, really intriguing. Right away, you're like, wait a minute. Uh, no, if this were true, this would be the story of the century, right? But no one, no one remembers this episode of Dateline. Nobody's talking about it, except, you know, a handful of hackers that still remember it to this day. Um, so what exactly was going on there? Um, I, I think what's really interesting, if you look at this time period in particular, in terms of media coverage of computer hacking, it's very, very sensational. Um, this is kind of before uh, people realized that hackers, uh, in many cases, were doing the public a huge service by uncovering security vulnerabilities, disclosing these vulnerabilities, working with companies, working with the government, right? All these different things. Um, so the, the coverage was extremely negative. Um, uh, it tend to make uh, impossible claims about what hackers were doing. Uh, and it was really trying to portray them as dangerous criminals. Um, the subculture um, 
is not happy about this, right, is it's giving them undue attention. In some cases, it's triggering law enforcement action, uh, which was completely unwarranted. Um, and, you know, they were not happy about the situation at all. Um, so with this case, it seems to be that hackers were trying to make a statement about uh, the veracity of news reporting around computer hacking. Right. They knew it was very, very easy to implant fake stories uh, in the media. In fact, this had been going on for a while uh, and it continues to go on for a while. Um, uh, groups like the Cult of the Dead Cow, um, which are sort of involved with this whole Quentin saga, um, they they sort of know how to lead reviewers or sorry, <laughs> lead interviewers into um, a, a, a line of questioning, right, um, that will try to draw out the sensational stuff. And of course, they deliver on the sensational material. Um, and so it's, it's not hard to convince uh, reporters that you could do impossible things like move a satellite in orbit, uh, <laughs> launch nuclear missiles by whistling into a telephone, right? There's a bunch of these stories that are circulating, uh, all of which are bogus. Uh, and so this is one example of that, right, where you, you tell a reporter, look, I broke into a government computer. I found all of these UFO part lists. I, I find uh, government officials talking about UFOs um, and you make it look plausible enough where, again, there's a lot of information asymmetry at this time. Reporters aren't tech savvy. They don't understand what an IP address is. Uh, they don't understand what uh, the Unix operating system is, what the VMS operating system is. So you give them kind of like reworked screenshots of real systems, real logs, right? Uh, but of course you're injecting uh, this this interesting fictional narrative about UFOs all along the way. Um, and so the hackers kind of start there. Uh, NBC, again, I apparently didn't do any fact checking. <laughs> um, <laughs> Quentin is this anonymous hacker who appears in this episode alongside two very real hackers uh, who are well known to the underground. Um, and, you know, his his voice is altered. His appearance is altered. So you can't tell who exactly it is. Um, and, you know, he tells this tale. Um, and, and it airs and a lot of hackers watch this and they're really excited. A lot of people who know nothing about computer hacking watch this episode and they're really excited, right? And they get sort of inducted into the subculture. Uh, and the hackers run with this for years. Uh, they write text files around this uh, episode. They develop the, the storyline about Quentin and this uh, secret group of hackers that recovers the UFO evidence. Um, and it really is, is uh, an exercise in, in sort of mythology, right? Myth building. Um, it really becomes like a cornerstone of, of the culture of hacking at that time because people knew about this. Um, they were excited that notable hackers were involved in this and they wanted to learn more. Let's talk a little bit more about the, the real versus fake stuff online and just how dangerous that actually is or isn't. Um, last year, there was a, a fake photo of an explosion near the Pentagon. It actually seemed to move the stock market. That was a reaction to it, um, which spooked some people into thinking this could you know, sooner rather than later become the new normal? Like how close are, do you think we are to actually seeing consistent real world consequences from fake content? Yeah, so this is not a new problem. Um, it's a long-standing problem. In fact, the Quentin uh, uh, escapade we just talked about is an example of this sort of thing. Um, I, I think the Pentagon example is sort of interesting because yeah, it did do something in the physical world, but it was quickly corrected. Um, so I, I think the one challenge of fooling people with fake content um, is that it's, it's rather ephemeral, right? Um, as soon as a lot of people start uh, scrutinizing the incident in a serious manner, um, you know, it's going to be de debunked rather quickly, right? 
Uh, I mean, you could even go to the Pentagon and see like, oh, look, it, it's fine. Nothing actually happened. Um, right. The, the narrative just gets overturned so quickly. We move on to the next thing. Now, it's sort of interesting that, you know, um, the market did fluctuate. Did somebody make money off of like a quick short or something? I don't I don't know. Right. Um, th there might be something there. But but I feel like that's like sort of the realm then of like uh, criminal activity. Right. And, and you know, there's going to be some sort of investigation uh, if if you could see that money moved very suspiciously at the same time. I'm something of a meme historian myself, uh, or at least I thought I was before I read this book. Uh, you go way deeper and further back with some of the examples in here, including side-by-sides that put today's memes next to drawings on ancient Greek pottery. Can you talk about just how far back you're able to trace this stuff? Yeah. So in the book, I go all the way back to antiquity. Um, and I try to make the case that a lot of what we like in culture hasn't changed that much. The communications mediums have changed. Uh, and so the idea of the meme is very, very old. Um, in fact, right, the, the term is coined by Richard Dawkins um, uh, back in the 1970s. Uh, and he makes a similar argument. Like he argues, in fact, like the, the meme complex of Socrates, right, is one of the most longstanding and successful memes of all time. Um, and so it's not hard to find these ancient examples. What I think is really curious about what I have in the book, right? It's like we think about memes today, not not being about stories, you know, it's not about storytelling, right? It's, it's not it's not Plato. It's more about the visual information, right? It's these these like one-off, you know, images um, that exist in some kind of meme universe. Like we, we get the joke immediately and we sort of like move on to the next thing. You see that a lot in Greek pottery, which is really interesting. In fact, you in some cases find the same tropes. So in the book, I kind of have like side by side examples. A really good one I like, um, the big brain meme, which I think a lot of us have seen, right? <laughs> it's like you're making this like ironic commentary on somebody doing something that isn't so smart, but they think it's really smart, right? Um, you know, it's, it's used a lot in internet humor. And so it's usually, again, like some stock internet character with like a giant brain. Um, th there are instances I found of like Greek pots with like the same exact kind of figure, right? Somebody with this like over-exaggerated head. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's just, you know, it, it's, it's, it's still funny. It still works. Um, a common theme throughout the book is that there's, there's real value in the satirical commentary put forth by memes and, and what some interpret as mis misinformation. Can you talk a little bit more about why humans are predisposed to put this stuff out? Yeah, I think there's a huge misunderstanding when it comes to a lot of fake content, which is a little mm -hmm. bit surprising since I think a lot of people do appreciate parody and satire. Um, so, so number one, these things are really important, especially in political contexts, right? Um, mm -hmm. In many cases, it helps us to understand uh, a complex situation. It helps to lighten the mood so we can talk about a very serious matter. Uh, in a way, right, that isn't hostile. Um, but what's weird about contemporary life right now, it's hard to do that, right? Again, we, we talk a lot about like cancel culture these days. Uh, a lot of parody and satire has been canceled, right? You think about like, you know, um, the decline of like stand-up comedy, uh, the decline, a lot of people talking now about like the decline of like comedy movies, right? Um, if you think about like comedy in the 1970s, right, uh, Mel Brooks, right, he's like really prominent in the space of parody and satire. Like, could you make Blazing Saddles today? No, right. Um, that that movie, um, if you just stick at the surface level messages, right, it's, it's highly racist, right. Um, it's anti-Semitic, right. It's, it's like all of these different things, right. History of the world is like the same thing. But that's not that's not really the point, right. Like the, the point is to make, right, a more lighthearted comment on serious matters like racism and get us to think about it. 
And the other thing too with Mel Brooks, where he's like making fun of everybody, right? So it's not like he's pushing one one serious political agenda there. Um, and so that that has always been a useful uh, thing, right? Think about also um, political cartoons in newspapers, right? Um, a lot of that kind of material is now uh, seen as being very controversial um, and is being pulled, right, from from different outlets. Um, what are we losing, right, uh, when we do this, right? That's a big, big question. Now, in in response to this, what I've seen on the internet, again, memes, right? So it, people are still doing this. They're doing it anonymously, right? Releasing memes, right, out there. Um, and again, people are still circulating them. People are reworking them. But again, a lot of it is anonymous or, you know, somebody's adopting a pseudonym and releasing this material. Um, you know, it's like you look at the social media platforms, like in many cases, nobody has any idea uh, where this meme came from, right? It's, it's just popular all of a sudden. Um, and so that's really hard to cancel, right? So again, the inclination is still there, um, but it's, it's impossible to sort of stamp out, right? Because you don't know who's doing it. Uh, and in many cases, right, I think it's many of us, right? It's, it's like people sort of recognize what's going on. Do you think the medium can make it any more dangerous? For example, like when it comes to social media feeds, we're not sitting with a book or a pamphlet or a Mel Brooks film contemplating or you know, staring at a vase in a bazaar. We're just like swiping to the next thing. Uh, without giving it any more analysis or thought, is there risk of like a death by a thousand paper cuts effect where we're consuming so much of it so quickly that we're not really thinking and it's just slowly rewiring our brains? Yeah, so I, I think there's several things going on. So that's one issue, right? The like pervasive feed. And and my book points that out as being potentially very socially damaging, right? Depending on how like bad that content is, right? Especially the book mm -hmm. talks a lot about shock content, you know, like, like, um, violent pornography, like really odious things, right? Um, then uh, there's, I think, I think a secondary problem where you have a lot of like, again, parody and satire that is misunderstood, right? Especially a lot of this is like bad in-group, out-group signaling. Um, so what I've seen on the internet, again, you have a community, um, it has its own set of jokes, right? Its own set of norms and people within the community like understand these things and respect them. Somebody from the outside is looking at this stuff and they misunderstand um, what happens, right? If they're inspired to commit a violent act based on material that is purely satirical, right? That's bad. And what I think the internet has a big problem doing is correcting people when they see this happens, right? Like when the in-group sees this happening, they, they sort of just kind of like troll the person, right? Because they think it's funny. Like that's a huge social problem. Uh, <laughs> instead, they could just say helpfully, hey, you know what? Like this is actually all a joke, right? Like don't take this seriously. Like we don't think you should, you should act on this information. No, it's way more fun to just say whoosh, you didn't get it. Like a Yeah, exactly. Um, how do we know you're real? Um, <laughs> what I mean by that is uh, like, are there tactics or tells that people should use to ideal real versus fake content? Yeah. Okay. So this, this is a great question. This has been coming up a lot uh, when I've been doing interviews about this book. Like, it's like, what do I do if I'm like a reasonable person? I, I think number one, it's like, where do we get our information? And like, how, how should we understand the internet? Right. I, I think a big thing is like, you can be a reasonable person and understand that the internet should not be relied upon in all circumstances. <laughs> like you shouldn't go there. Uh, to get serious information and only use it as like, your sole source. Um, you know, there are different organizations on the internet producing information. 
Um, you know, if it's a professional news organization, maybe it's more reliable than your uncle, right, who is just writing things on, um, uh, you know, some social media platform. Um, but again, we know that the, the news media has a problem, too, with fake news. So maybe you want to, like, look at a number of different, like, sort of reliable sources, mostly reliable sources and aggregate that information. Um, the internet is kind of nice because again a lot of people are talking on the internet mm -hmm. so again like if, if a consensus is building around an issue maybe that's sort of interesting and more reliable um, but maybe more threatening again if many people are like believing a false uh, idea um, i think you can turn also to sources that are not on the internet right like there's still information from the physical world you can talk to other people right people perhaps that are experiencing something in the physical world that people are talking about on the internet right it's like try to gather more evidence um, you know, listen to public officials. Now, again, of course, they can be wrong as well. Um, but again, if, if there's a sensational video of a public uh, figure on the Internet and nobody in the government is talking about it, major news organizations aren't talking about it, probably isn't real, right? Um, because you probably would have heard about it. In the book, there are plenty of examples of fake content and its impact. And, and one of the more fascinating ones, and probably the most complete story, because there's a real postmortem on it, is the story of 9-11 tourist guy, which um, that sprouted up in the aftermath of 9-11, obviously. And back then, this stuff used to have to travel mostly by email. Um, can you walk us through that meme? So the 9-11 tourist guy is an early internet meme. It shows up uh, in the sort of aftermath of the 9-11 uh, attack on the United States. Um, and it's a photo of a man standing at the top of one of the World Trade Center towers. Um, and what's shocking about the photo, um, there is an airliner barreling at the tower behind him, and he's not paying attention because he's posing for this photograph. Um, so this this image, it was a digital image. It was circulating via email because this is, um, you know, 2001, 2002. This is before social media was a thing. Um, and it was kind of this like chain letter. So what was really fascinating about this to me is, is the text that accompanies the image. So the image itself is kind of shocking, but there's a little story about it. Uh, because again, if you're thinking about it, you're like, wait a minute, like this tower was destroyed. Like where did this photo come from? Right. And so the, the story explains the, the quote unquote origin of this photo, um, you know, so that the towers are uh, destroyed. Um, there are first responders digging through the rubble looking for survivors in the immediate aftermath of the attack. Um, and one of these uh, first responders uncovers a camera and there's a roll of film in the camera. Right. So he goes and he like, develops the, the photo. Um, and lo and behold, you know, here is the final moment of this man and the whole tower. Right. Um, and that's kind of like the story that that's accompanying uh, the, the image. Um, and so immediately there's intense speculation, right? Um, you know, is this real? Is this fake? Um, you know, it, it seems kind of compelling, right? I mean, the photo, um, you know, doesn't look obviously false, though, again, you sort of question, you know, what are the odds this, this, this photo was captured at this exact moment? Um, you know, there's still some question, too, about the, the recovery of the camera. It's like this is a catastrophic failure of this building, Right. How in the world did this camera survive uh, to recover this photo? You know, you know, the story may be plausible, but, you know, people are skeptical. Um, and so um, eventually um, the tourist guy comes forward. Yes, it, he was not killed. Um, he, he was um, uh, uh, from Hungary and it was all a hoax. And he says, look, like um, I, I did it. And I, you know, I just used uh, photo editing software to create this photo. 
Um, and that, of course, leads to like a secondary controversy as to whether or not it's ethical to do things like this. Um, on the one hand, right, you know, this is a very serious matter. Um, you know, many people died in the attack, right? Um, it led to um, disastrous uh, foreign policy decisions, right? Uh, many people died uh, uh, in subsequent actions, right, because of this attack. Um, you know, it, it's, it was sort of making light of a very serious matter that you shouldn't be joking about. Um, okay, that's understood. But on the flip side, um, th this kind of like dark humor has always been around, right? You know, people have always been sort of, you know, using humor to work through very serious circumstances because it helps them cope. Um, and again, coming back to some of that parody and satire, right, of course, right, that's the big, a big piece of it. Again, coming back to Mel Brooks, in fact, right, you know, he's making fun of very serious matters like the Holocaust, you know, the Spanish Inquisition. Um, but that's, again, helping people sort of like deal with the, the serious nature of, of history. Um, and, you know, that kind of sets the tone, I think, for the conversation we're having now about, right, um, again, all this content on the Internet, right? You know, like memes, like some of them look pretty aggressive, right? Is that bad? Um, you know, all of them seem to be humorous in some capacity, right, um, these days. And, and that's kind of the evolution then of the 9-11 Taurus guy photo. Like it keeps going, which is really fascinating. It is a proper meme genre. Um, so people took that base image using Photoshop uh, and they sort of copied the tourist out of the photo and put him into other disasters, right? Um, some real, some imagined. <laughs> you know, it's like, here's the tourist guy uh, with the Challenger space shuttle explosion. Here's the tourist guy as um, King Kong is attacking New York, um, right? So this just continues on, right? So it's kind of clear, like, what sort of went out at the end of the day, right? Um, it was using, right, um, this creativity to cope with circumstances, uh, not the sort of more serious, grim, uh, pedantic reading of of the circumstances. Yeah, you mentioned in the book that you know you have these opposing sides that emerge out of this, where there's like the the traditional technologists who thought the internet should be like a database of just true information and actual data, and then on the other side you have people like you mentioned, like everyday people using it to get get off a laugh or do something creative, and uh, you know it's just crazy that there's just these two factions that emerge from there. Yeah, this is a long-standing problem with the internet. Um, I sort of trace it back to the 1990s, this idea of the information superhighway. <laughs> so, um, you know, if you're old enough, you sort of remember the early days of the Internet, especially the marketing that went into the Internet. Um, you know, large corporations very quickly move into the Internet, realizing a lot of money can be made there. And they have this idea that this is kind of like a database. It's a database of facts. You will go there to retrieve factual information and to do serious things like conduct commerce, uh, you will like, you know, go to school and make use of Internet resources because the facts are there. Um, but that wasn't really the original thinking behind the Internet. Um, again, coming back to Marshall McLuhan uh, in the 1960s, um, he has a more radical vision of what this uh, space will be. Um, it will be a place where people from all over the world will come together and they will project their imaginations to other people. Uh, he is sort of uh, envisioning uh, the development of creative technologies. Um, he's envisioning real-time communication. Um, he's quite enamored with television, you know, in the 50s and 60s, but he knows that's only one way, right? He wants this uh, both ways, right? So like moving images and video across the globe. Um, and that, of course, is the internet that engineers were excited about and built in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. And that's the internet that everybody loves, right? So a lot of people went into the internet not having this expectation that it would be a database of facts. Um, that said, um, there is still this idea uh, today, especially in corporate and government spaces, 
uh, that the information superhighway is what we need, and we got to get all this other stuff off the internet. You mentioned McLuhan. Um, he also, I mean, he's a pretty integral figure in the book too. Uh, ended up a devout Catholic. You're deeply ingrained in computer science, which is obviously very logic and evidence-based, and you teach at a Catholic university, which faith is obviously a major pillar of that. I think on the surface, that seems a little contradictory, but I've read interviews where you've very deeply considered the spiritual aspects of the technologies you're researching and teaching. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, at its core, um, like a faith like Christianity is about um, the encounter with others uh, and communities. And especially like the Catholic version of this, right, is very much invested um, in this idea of a, a communal existence. Uh, and it's always good to be in community. Um, this is the idea I think that McLuhan picks up um, when he uh, becomes a Catholic convert uh, and really runs with, with with his media theories. And what's interesting, he does it in a very low key way. He's not like a vocal evangelist. Um, he's kind of crafting theories very subtly, right, that really match uh, his deep spiritual beliefs. Uh, and he firmly believes, right, that uh, restructuring the world in this way will do it a lot of spiritual good. Uh, and I think that makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, in my own Catholic faith, right? I, I think this is like one of the strongest things that keeps me excited uh, about everything, right? You know, it's like, it's like again, encountering other people, building really positive, interesting relationships, um, you know, helping people solve their problems, right? Um, there's so much good in that, right? And that really builds into a larger notion of the common good, uh, which is a key piece of, of Catholicism and other Christian uh, denominations. Um, so with examples like the... Uh... The Pentagon stuff we talked about earlier in the 9-11 tourist guide, there's always a, a knee-jerk talk of regulation after something like that happens or, or becomes kind of mainstream. Do you see any scenario where that would be necessary or should the internet just stay free in perpetuity? There is so much chatter about regulation these days, um, right? especially with respect to social media. You know, like what is to be done? You know, it's like we got to regulate it. We have to regulate it. And I think the trouble with um, a lot of the ideas around regulation, it comes down to some form of control of speech. And that's extremely difficult to do in the United States, um, right? Uh, the laws here um, provide very strong guarantees on freedom of speech. And that's not true uh, in other places around the world, but here it is the case. So practically speaking, I, I don't see a viable path for that happening. <laughs> And, and again, thinking about it deeply, I'm not sure I would want to use that Internet right? Um, yeah. if right, there, there uh, is some sort of sensor out there. Right. Um, you know, is that really what what people want? Right. That feels very much like uh, some sort of authoritarian government's move. Right. Um, and, and again, I, I feel like that's just never going to happen here. Right. I, I think, again, it, it generates a lot of buzz, but I, it's just not feasible. Yeah, we're talking about, you know, fake content and deep fakes and things like that, uh, mostly in a negative light here. Do you see scenarios where these technologies can be harnessed for good? Yeah, so deep fakes are really interesting um, because it's really a kind of at its heart like um, like a computer graphics oriented technology, which we've seen before in positive contexts. Um, if you remember the movie, The Social Network, speaking of social media, um, the... There were two characters, right, like the, the Winklevoss twins, right? They were actually portrayed by the same actor, but there were two bodies involved. So by hand, 
the Hollywood studio um, basically deep faked, right, the, the, the actors such that they would have the same face and it would be sort of naturally animated. Um, that's pretty neat. That's pretty interesting. But they had to do it by hand using right, computer graphics technologies that were not automated. Um, you could do that now using right, a deep fake-like process, and it would just make it a bit easier. right? So you think about it like it's just bringing the bar uh, a bit lower in terms of that kind of media production, right? So that's pretty interesting. Um, there's a lot of excitement too about, um, you know, like creating characters um, or, or, you know, sort of characters that exist. Um, you know, they're portrayed by, you know, an actor or an actress, uh, but that person passes away after a uh, you know, period of time. <laughs> you know, like, could you keep them going, right? It's like, could this, like, you know, uh, character continue to exist, right, in some, you know, uh, uh, media universe, right? That would be kind of interesting. But it's also a little bit controversial, right? You know, it's like this person's name, image, and likeness is sort of, you know, carrying on after death. Um, but, but again, I, I think that's neat, right? That's, that's a more sort of, you know, like uh, creative use of the technology. It's not just about um, uh, uh, politics, right? It's not just about um, a really horrific um, uh, cases of like, you know, uh, non-consensual pornography targeting, you know, women, things of that nature. You're talking about, you know, content characters, uh, IP, bringing that back when like the, the actual actor dies. What about bringing back actual people after they pass away as, you know, bots and, and things like that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So there's also a longstanding interest in this. Um, so in the book, I go back to um, like the late 19th, early 20th century when old spirit photography was popular. Um, so believe it or not, um, uh, editing photos, that's not a new thing. Uh, it didn't just appear with the invention of Photoshop. Um, basically, as soon as the cameras invented, um, darkroom uh, technicians are figuring out really creative ways to edit the photos, right? Add special effects, all of these different things. A really clever photographer realized um, that if you exposed the film negative to light multiple times, you would get multiple images on the negative, right? From different points in time. Um, and so uh, photographers started to add this to their catalog of special effects one could order when they were sitting for a portrait. Um, so you would sort of come in, uh, you know, and sit for the, the portrait. And you would bring with you a photograph, an existing photograph of uh, your long dead wife, uh, a child that you know was lost at a young age, uh, and on the second exposure, right, um, that would be held up, right, in in position, so it would also appear on the negative. And when the photo was developed, this is really creepy. Um, the second, right, exposure would not be as high quality as the first, so you get this like apparition in the background so it would look like a ghost um and so you could keep this person sort of alive you know when you would get your family photos taken um and so i think if you flash forward to today right um there is some uh interest in that you know using uh deep fake like technologies uh when you sent your students to survey the landscape of ai doctored videos and deep fakes and things like that it seems like you found a lot more um, creativity than destruction. Can you talk about what they found when you sent them out uh, into that world? Yeah, so um, in a lot of my technical work uh, here at the university, um, I, I work in this area called media forensics. So this is trying to figure out, you know, has an image been edited? Is this image synthetic? Um, and I've been working on this for a long time. Um, started to think about it, uh, you know, going back to the sort of post 9-11 era, right? When there were a lot of national security concerns. Um, this, this question was being raised, you know, like, will some sort of like adversary of the United States start faking media content? And like, what hmm. implications will that have for, for national security? 
Um, and of course, right, that led to a subsequent question like, you know, can we develop countermeasures for this sort of thing, right? So for a number of years, I just sort of assumed, you know, oh, you know, this stuff is circulating, right? You know, it, it must be real if people are talking about it. Um, but after a certain point, I was kind of like, okay, like, I, I just haven't seen any cases of this, right? I mean, maybe the fakes are so good that no one is, has detected them yet, but that seems kind of suspicious, right? Especially, again, if it's, it's making uh, inroads in politics or, you know, like changing the course of history in some way, right? Like maybe somebody would have noticed. Um, we just we just we're not seeing this on the internet. So we we decided to to actually survey you know uh, the internet itself, look at social media, download many 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 images, run them through all of these automated detectors to see what if anything was manipulated. Now it turns out a lot of the internet uh, uh, was was fake, right? So we're getting a ton of images that have been manipulated, right, or synthesized in some way. Um, but what was really fascinating is in every case, they were all obviously manipulated because we're downloading a ton mm -hmm. of memes, right? Um, so again, it's, it's not a secret that this image has been edited, right? That's the whole point. Um, and we found basically no instances of anything, right, that, that looked like a plausible fake, right? So, so that kind of stuff Maybe it's so good we're not detecting it, but I, I'm extremely skeptical about that. Um, maybe it's this this other mode of creation, right? Where again, we, we're doing this intentionally. Uh, in some sense, right? Again, this is the internet McLuhan was, was giving us, right? Where it's like, I can project my imagination to do that. I need to use these tools, right? To rework uh, things I've sampled from the physical world using a camera, right? Uh, to, to, to do that, right? To do that in some really interesting novel way. Do you have a uh, best or favorite deep fake that you've seen or that they brought to you? Yeah, so that's interesting. I, you know what? I was thinking about this earlier. Like, what's the best deep fake? I still, this is an old one, but I still think it's good. It's one I use as an example in the classes I teach, right? And you've probably seen it because it's really famous. There's the, the Jordan Peele Obama video. <laughs> like, I think it's interesting for a number of reasons. Number one is funny, right? This is Jordan Peele. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's like it's not completely obviously fake, right? So it kind of is hinting at the danger this could pose. You know, it's it's a major public uh, uh, official, right? It's, it's, you know, former President Obama. Um, you know, it, it sort of could be plausible, but it but it's not. When you listen to the, the audio, right, it's, it's ridiculous, right? Um, you sort of know, right, it's not meant to be serious, right? Like, like Obama would never deliver, right, um, uh, a speech, right, like that. And of course, right, it's, it's quickly revealed you know, it's Jordan Peele as you, you you watch the video. But but I think it sort of sums up like all of the interesting aspects of this, right? Like could be a problem, but really isn't, right? Because it's easily debunked, right? And it's also lighthearted in nature because it's a comedian doing it. Yeah, you bring up the potential problems there. As someone who, you know, has dedicated their life basically to studying AI and deepfakes and things like that, are we asking the right questions? And if not, like, what are the questions we should be asking about it? Yeah, you know what? I, I don't think we're asking the right questions. Um, I, I think we're all aware of the, the media coverage of all of this. And again, coming back again to like the what the hackers were sort of concerned about, you know, um, several decades ago, like you see the same sort of thing now where there's like intense media scrutiny over this thing um, that reporters don't seem to understand. They're making a lot of assumptions. Um, and then that's leading to like this this broader and angry discussion about what we should do uh, when it comes to content on the internet. Uh, and I think we could diffuse a lot of that, right? If we sort of looked at the history of the internet itself and actually asked ourselves, why do we like the internet, right? Like, why, why are we making all this content? Why are we trading it? Right? I think a lot of people are sort of wary in public to like admit that like, oh yeah, I'm making memes. Oh yeah, I use Photoshop all the time. 
you know, yeah, I'm experimenting with these uh, uh, generative AI models, right, that are producing all of these fake videos, fake snippets of text, um, you know, and, and that I think could help sort of diffuse a lot of this. Um, so I won't give away the entirety of the book's conclusion, but near the end, you drop a quote from philosopher Shannon Valor. It's, it's about virtue's role in making ethical assessments about all the new technologies that are emerging. And it closes with the choices we make will shape the future for our children, our societies, our species, and others who share our planet in ways never before possible. Are we prepared to choose well? So I guess my question for you is, what does choosing well look like to you? Yeah, I love that quote. I think Shannon Valor really captures the the burden of this, right? Really, really succinctly uh, in that quote. And I think she's also a really interesting voice too, like thinking about this deeply, right? Looking at different periods of technology, like when were we living with technology in a better way, right? I, I think we can all agree the social media experiment has gone off the rails, right? So we know we're not living well right now with what mm -hmm. we have, um, but certainly there are alternatives. Um, what's really great about technology, computer technology, um, is that it's reconfigurable. It's quick, uh, it's very quick to, to sort of, you know, reprogram something uh, and to sort of get these things to bend the way we want them uh, to. So, you know, if, if I want to sort of be a virtuous person on the internet, like, what do I want to do? Um, I probably want to back off a lot of contemporary social media. I might be thinking about alternative spaces that resembled some of the social spaces that existed in the 80s and 90s, which weren't as uh, uh, apocalyptic, right, when it comes to, right, like heated rhetoric. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of this has to do, too, with a polarized political environment. And that's not just a problem in the United States, right? This is like a political crisis that's global, right? Uh, how much of our activity on the Internet uh, should be political, right? Like how, how much time do we want to invest in that on the Internet? Right. I think if we pulled back from a lot of that. Um, the Internet would probably be uh, a much more virtuous and happy place. That's not to say that politics has no role right, on the Internet, but I feel like too much of social media is dominated by that one aspect of life that we're losing track of a lot of the things we actually enjoy. When you talk about pulling back, um, are you referring more to like closed spaces? Because I know for all of you know, what Mark Zuckerberg's tried to push the metaverse on us. And obviously Facebook is very open. He's also made a lot of commentary about like the future of his platforms are in the DMs and more tighter groups. Um, is that kind of what you're referring to? Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at the earlier history of computer networking, that's exactly how it was, right? So my book talks mm -hmm. a lot about bulletin board systems. Um, these were places that in some cases were completely open, but they were special interest boards, right? So you would probably only go there if you were interested in connecting with other people that shared that interest. Um, and that kept the community small, yet still, you know, national or global in some cases, right? Um, because anybody could dial into the board, right? Leave messages, uh, exchange files, etc. Um, and so this is really interesting. I think this is a better match to like what McLuhan is envisioning right back in the 60s. I don't think he quite grasped the potential of everybody being in the same place at the same time and trying to talk to each other. Right. That clearly has not worked as a model. Um, but I think, right, if you could find the right people to talk to right across the globe, um, you would probably have a much better time. Uh, you wouldn't probably face a lot of trolling. Um, I think there still would be some friction. In fact, some friction is good. In fact, Shannon Valor writes a lot about this as well, right? Um, because the internet is so hostile now, a lot of people really refrain from, you know, making good, perhaps valid, yet controversial arguments because they don't want to receive a ton of blowback, right, very suddenly, um, right? That, that's quite jarring in many cases, right, threatening, uh, which isn't great. 
Um, but again, if you had a place where you got to know people, right, um, and, and you, you sort of understood where they were coming from, uh, and you didn't have a million people shouting, um, I think it could be a much more positive experience. And again, I, I think there's a lot of nostalgia for that period, but I think there's also, again, this like very practical reason to go back to right these smaller social spaces. Is there a space that you think is is close to that? Because when you first started describing it, I, my mind immediately went to Reddit because the conversations and the topics are much more focused, but then it's also just out there in the open. I mean, someone Googles yeah, a question, yeah, Reddit, they're going to land in Reddit. Exactly. I think Reddit is, is, is like a step in that direction. So it's not, it's not Twitter slash X for sure. Right. Um, it does have mods, right? So that's good. Like it keeps the subreddits, some of the subreddits on topic, but it's still public, right? I think that's like, it's still a big right. issue, right? So you can go to any subreddit and read it, most subreddits. You can just post right as, as a user, you can just sort of like intrude on them. Um, I think a better uh, example of this might be um, Discord, right? So it's mm -hmm. like there's like a Discord um, that is like for a special topic. In some cases, right, it's like invite only. Um, you see Slacks being established is the same thing, right? You know, it's like it's like invite only, mm -hmm. um, right? Or it's open, but again, like there are tighter controls on, you know, uh, where you can go. And like some trust has to be built before you get more access, Right. I think those are really, really good examples. And I see, again, in my own use of those platforms, right, um, uh, it, it, it seems like much saner. It doesn't seem as hostile. There isn't as much attention grabbing because, again, it's not meant to be like uh, public posting. Um, you know, it's, it's more conversational. All right. We have a, a fun little feature on this podcast. We used to kind of judge our subjects. We call it tab check. Uh, Walter, right now, how many tabs do you have open on your web? All right, I, I've counted these tabs and there are 42, which is, I, I think, a good number to have open. <laughs> that's not, that's not intentional. It just, that just happened to be the number that popped out. Um, keep in mind too, I, I just did a tab clean out. So while this seems like a high number, it was much worse, uh, right when the semester ended here at Notre Dame. In fact, in one of my last lectures, I had... I had my, I, something went wrong with the presentation. So I had to like escape and it was like a Google presentation, right? And the students like audibly gasped when they saw the browser <laughs> and all of the text. <laughs> that was my follow-up. Is 42 typical? It sounds like more like 142. Is yeah, exactly. Yeah, 42, this is, that's my, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. on the low end. So. The trick I've unearthed is just keep them in separate windows so it doesn't feel that, uh, <laughs> yeah. that overwhelming. You just uh, like minimize that one window. <laughs> Uh, when you open your social media apps, what are the algorithms feeding you right now? Ooh, what are the algorithms feeding me? Okay, so I know a lot about how these algorithms work, right? Because again, like my core area of research is, is AI. And so what I've done is actually turn off all that stuff. So I really, I, again, maybe I'm old school. I really like to just get content from people I have intentionally followed and when they sort of give an endorsement for something, then I go and check it out and maybe add, you know, another sort of user to the feed. Um, but I really try to refrain from these these AI curated feeds. Because again, I think that's how you end up in these like doom scrolling loops. Um, what are some of your favorite accounts to follow on social media? Ooh, that's a good question. So I love I love a lot of uh, accounts related to um, uh, computer vision, machine learning, artificial intelligence, natural language processing. Um, so a really cool account that I love um, is the AK account on Twitter slash X. 
Um, and there's also in my book, in fact, so it's, it's run by uh, an engineer at Hugging Face, and he was really kind to give me some of his AI-generated art to use uh, in the book. Mm. Um, but what he does is basically look for, like, the most interesting papers on generative AI uh, on Archive, which is uh, an open access preprint server for academic papers. But that's where you find, like, the, the most cutting-edge stuff. Um, and so that's cool because it's like, okay, like, I want to keep up uh, with the algorithms that are, you know, creating fake images, creating... Uh, fake stories, you know, it's like, what's the state of the art? Um, this this guy does a phenomenal job sort of, you know, uh, collecting all that information and, and uh, uh, curating it for a very large audience. He has a huge following. I was going to say, yeah, he's doing a great job. He's got a quarter million followers just on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the last thing that made you truly laugh online? So somebody, so speaking of Slack and Discord, I was in, I was in a Slack and somebody shared this ridiculous meme image. Um, it was it was like the most irreverent thing, commenting on like a mundane transgression. So it was like, um, like typo in the group chat was like the meme, right? <laughs> what happens when somebody typos? You know, like the classic thing is like everybody starts making fun of that person, right? They start like copying that typo over and over again. And, and this meme was like that had all these like like evil looking skulls. It's like typo in the group chat. It had some stuff I won't repeat, right? <laughs> like vulgar stuff. And it was just it was just like so irreverent, so funny at that moment, right? Because again, it was posted after somebody you know typoed some word. I was like, that's like the best of internet humor, where it's like it's like on the spot, like it, it's like making fun of something uh, that is so mundane in the most absurd way, right? Um, I always laugh at that stuff. Oh yeah, one of my group chats. Like, if someone makes a typo, we change the name of the chat to that word. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, like that's <laughs> classic. <laughs> All right, let's go to the dark side. Uh, what is your most scarring moment on the internet? If you can bring yourself to disclose it. Yeah, actually, so this is I cover this in the book. So th there was a website back in the '90s and early 2000s called Rotten.com. It oh, was yeah. it was an early shock content site, and its goal was to collect the most offensive, heinous, disgusting things on the internet, right? Basically, again, to like horrify the the viewer. And it was extremely popular. Um, it was widely covered in the mainstream media because it was so shocking. Um, and there's a really fascinating backstory about the site, which is covered in the book, right? It's something that came out of the computer underground. Uh, it was very much a, a hacker innovation. Uh, really, really fascinating. But again, I'm scarred for life uh, from looking at that site. <laughs> and you visited it how often? Were you there? Yeah, no, com no comment. No comment. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, how do you pry yourself away from your devices or log off? Um, do you have any specific tactics that might be helpful for others? Yeah, this is a great question. It's something I cover a lot in my courses on technology ethics, right? Because again, I think so many people are concerned about their internet use. Uh, they're concerned about what they're looking at. Uh, obsessively, they're obsessed about, you know, like content uh, that is completely like irrelevant to anything, right? They're not getting enough sleep. So like, what do you do? Um, I, I think number one, you have to appreciate um, things that are not digital, right? Especially, I think we've lost like the idea of like contemplation, like things, things yeah. move so fast these days, right? We're so obsessed with like our careers, uh, we're obsessed, right, uh, with working, like, all of the time, right? And our devices, right, sort of facilitate this, right? You know, like, Slack can be good, but if it's, like, your boss on Slack, that's not good, right? <laughs> so you have to sort of decouple. And I think really 
uh, value things, right? That that again, like we typically don't value in today's like market driven world, right? So it's like, why don't you just go outside, you know, in nature, like take a walk, right? Do that in all seasons, like really appreciate uh, the world around you, right? Like do not bring your phone on that walk, right? Uh, and do this for like several hours, right? Um, just clear your mind, just think. Um, I, I think that kind of activity, like, you know, was very common, uh, even in like the recent past, but it's just fallen by the wayside because it's not, it's not useful, right? It's not productive. Yeah, I totally agree. Although I take a half measure with that. I'll go for a walk in nature, but I still have a podcast. Just <laughs> yeah, see, even that, right? It's, just, <laughs> it's more content. It's more content hitting you. You gotta, you gotta detach. Gotta, gotta block all the information out. Uh, where do you think you would be without the internet? <laughs> probably nowhere yeah <laughs> yeah speaking of careers like, yeah i mean my whole career is like this right like this digital stuff <laughs> i don't i have no idea what i'd be doing <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> that's fair. i keep that, that's like the recurring answer with everyone i talk to it's yeah. like i honestly don't know so, yeah like, <laughs> i mean to be fair like i do work in computing so it's like yeah, it's like, you know, it's I like mean, you're, you're actually stuff. making money off of it. So that's yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's say that the internet actually did go away. What's the one thing you would save? Oh, absolutely. I would save the internet archive. I think they do a yes. phenomenal job. Well, that's kind of cheating. You're still just saving the, the internet. The internet, right? So it's like, <laughs> if we're going to lose it, we can't use it. We might as well save the information that was there, right? Future generations can look back and see what, what transpired, all the good stuff, all the bad stuff. Right. I really think that's like one of the best things on the internet, right? It's so interesting to see what they, they have archived. All right. Well, thank you, Walter, for this discussion, for your contributions to the internet, and for both documenting and analyzing the advances of technology in a history of fake things on the internet. This is Ryan Perry saying log off. The internet will be there when you get back. 